and welcome to the Rethinking Leadership podcast series. I'm Jude Jennison, host of this podcast and founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company. I believe that leadership is about who we are being as much as what we're doing and that when we combine our brilliant minds with the emotional engagement of the heart, we can solve all of the world's problems. In this podcast, I interview leaders on their experiences of disruptive change and ask them how leaders can position themselves for the future of business. Find out what this week's leader has to say. Deb Leary is the CEO of Forensic Pathways, a business she set up in 2001 after overhearing a chance conversation at a police conference. Deb has built her business on innovation, designing products and services that meet specific market needs in the security sector, despite having no prior experience in that market. Deb talks honestly about the need to know when to let go of products when they're not hitting the mark and to continually look forward, hone those products or develop something new. At a time when every business is having to adapt, it's crucial to consider what needs to be redesigned, dropped or created. There is so much that we can learn from Deb. Have a listen. Hi Deb, thanks for joining me today. No problem, looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, can you tell us who you are and what you do, please? Yeah, so my name's Deborah Leary. Um, I'm CEO and founder of a company called Forensic Pathways, based in uh, Birmingham. And I I wear a number of other hats. I'm also uh, Vice President of the Greater Birmingham Chamber of Commerce, amongst many other things. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us um, how you... Tell, tell us a bit about Forensic Pathways, what you do, how you got into it. Okay. I started Forensic Pathways back in uh, 2001. Um, I didn't mean to start a company. It was a, it was a bit of an accident uh, based on my nosiness. Um, I was actually uh, on holiday with my husband at the time who was uh, speaking at a conference in Canada. And I overheard a conversation between uh, it was a police conference and I overheard a conversation between two police officers one from Canada and one from the UK um, talking about product and process and how they operate in crime scenes and the um, the Canadian police officer was talking to the American police officer which sounds a bit like a joke coming and and a, a UK guy and the UK police officer said, you know, at all major crime scenes, we use a, a stepping plate. And the Canadian said, don't know what a stepping plate is. So for some bizarre reason, which I think is probably menopausal, uh, I, um, I, went on to, um, I went on to try and find out what a stepping plate actually was. And I came back to the UK and I was uh, just about to start a, a new job. And in my time off, I uh, started to look at what what was the stepping plate, and there were low-level platforms that are put down at crime scenes, sort of three, like a stepping stone. So you put them down through a crime scene, so you can walk on through the scene without contaminating it. Right. And uh, I cranked up, cranked up Google at the time because we were all on dial-up back in two thousand and one. Yeah. And looked for stepping plates, and I also arranged to go. My husband arranged for me to go and pick up a stepping plate from the uh, from a police station, and I was expecting this scientific piece of kit, <laughs> and all it was was a piece of aluminium tread plate, which was very heavy. 
would if you put it down on the floor in your kitchen on on uh, tiles or on laminate flooring you you would skid uh, they weren't stackable and most importantly you couldn't see through them now my academic background is in english language and literature so i'm always interested in stories and so when i thought about it i thought well when an investigator goes to a crime scene how can they put how can they put the story together of what's happened at that crime scene if they can't see it, if it's hidden under a ton of aluminium? Mm. So I, I went on to the um, I went on to Google and looked for a transparent stepping plate and um, there wasn't one. So basically from 2001 to 2003, I started develop, uh, inventing the, the transparent stepping plate for the forensic market. Um, and, and that's how the company started, um, purely on that one one product. Um, that's quite astonishing, really, isn't it? Because <laughs> did you have a, any police background before that? No, I mean my husband was in the police force, but you know it, it was it, it was back in the day, and it seems like it's amazing to think about it now. Back in two thousand and one, and back into the nineties, we hadn't got mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when he went out to work, he went out to work and I didn't know when, what time he was coming back because he was a detective. Um, and we never, we never talked, I got my job and we never talked about work. Police officers tend not to talk about what they do. It, they just want to leave it behind. So it's not something we ever talked about. And, um, and, and so now I've got, I'd worked for the police force for a year, but that was just in antecedent records, typing as a typist when I first left college. So, so no, not really. But I, I did. I was. I've always been interested in in the power of stories, and particularly how stories can be manipulated and and, and changed dependent on on your own personal circumstances and how you interpret a story. Mm. Um, you know, it's a, there's a thing called uh, reader theory where, you know, when you read a, when you, you, you can read a book when you're 20 and, and have an experience of it in one way, but when you read it when you're 40 or 50, your experience of the book will be different depending on your own life experience. And yeah. all that comes into play when you do an investigation as well, how you interpret a scene. You have to leave that sort of confirmation bias behind. So when, when, when I saw that the stepping plates were made of aluminium, I thought, well, that's bloody ridiculous. You can't, you can't see your you scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can you construct anything? And so I, I spent that, those... I, I incorporated the company in 2001. Uh, when I went to Canada, it was the March of 2001, and I incorporated, incorporated the company in the summer of 2001. I carried on doing my teaching job and just started you know engaging with police forces and the 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 funny thing was that i um i i mocked up a a, a stepping plate with a piece of plastic and four screwing feet and i sent out to every police force in the country the world's worst marketing literature just <laughs> two sides of a4 i think it had got every font on it known to man um i think i'd even done the awful thing of putting sherlock holmes on it at one point and and sent it out to the police force as a, as a mock-up and said you know these are available and i remember getting a phone call from a a, a police force in in scotland and the uh, the guy um the guy, I pretended I, he asked to be put through to sales, so I had to put him on hold. 
<laughs> had to put him on hold for a minute. Um, and he said, yeah, I'd like to buy 50. And I thought there was a, that tumbleweed moment where I thought, do I blag this and say, yeah, I can get them to you in about two weeks? Or, or do I tell the person and say, I wouldn't sell you these if my life depended on it because it's just a mock-up and they're not how I want them to be. So I, I, I said, well, that's lovely. I'm really pleased, but they don't exist. And he was quite at his end. And then I explained what I was doing. I said, if the market doesn't want it and you're the expert in your field, then I know not to waste my time, but by the fact that you want to order 50, mm. means that I've got a market, so I'll get on and do it. And, um, and he, that, that, that police officer and that police force stuck with me all the way through. Fantastic. And, and that's uh, a great example of where they often say, sell it first and build it second, don't they? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, they, and that's absolutely true. And I think people hold back from doing something because they, want, they think it's got to be perfect. Mm. and it you know you, you carry on no matter what the product or the service that you're offering it's never perfect because the whole world you know revolt, carries on revolving and so you've got to continually adapt and so I think when 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 I when I did that with the stepping plates um they were going very well and and there were some things I wanted to change and and then clients came back to me and said could you change this and 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 I had the awful experience of of changing something with the plates that was asked for by the client, but because the plates were polycarbonate, polycarbonate has to flex, and by doing what I, what the client wanted me to do, it actually caused trouble with the plate. So I ended up spending another uh, probably about another eight to ten months having to start all over again with new tooling and, and redesigning. Um, which is a bit traumatic, but it's all it, it all went well in the end, and you know the the plates are sold all over the world, and and they've appeared on shows like CSI New York and Silent Witness and Vero and all of all of that sort of stuff, and you know they are they are they are standard operating procedures. That stepping plates are standard ops for for the UK and for for Europe. So and there's still a lot of countries that haven't had them. But I think the, the, the key thing was, once I got that product under my belt, it was really a case of, okay, you can't live by one product alone. What's the market looking like? Because the market changes mm. and, um, and you can't stand still. So, you know, back in 2001, it was all very much about, you know, traditional crime scene work and traditional crime scene products. But we knew that the world was changing and that the the commodity, if you like, was going to be around data and mobile phones and all that data that was being collected by people just by simply using their mobile phones. So we started probably the back end of 2004, yeah, about 2004, started looking at developing a technology around image analysis. Uh, and mobile phone and the management of mobile phone data um, because we're all collecting so much data on our phones and mm. obviously criminals do too. So uh, from that we developed new technologies, one of which was um, a, a product called Forensic Image Analyzer where we can identify the unique signature within an image. So we can say if we've got a, a, if we've got a photograph, if we've got an image, 
we can say that that image has been taken by an iPhone 7. Wow. And, if, and if we've got a million iPhone 7s in the room, we'd be able to tell you exactly which iPhone 7 took that image. Fantastic. Uh, so and you've that, not stood yeah. still then with your business. You've continually evolved in terms of the, the products, the market, yeah. the... If you were to timeline the business, really, it started off with the traditional forensics because that's where the market was. It then, we then started to preempt what was happening in the, globally with regards to data. So then we moved into digital forensics, looking at the management of an interrogation of image analysis, particularly important with regards to pedophile crime, terrorism, that sort of stuff. And then a mobile phone data as well, um, the management of that. So we developed a uh, technology called Forensic Digital Exchange, which is about managing that all that uh, mobile phone data, not from normal citizens I'm talking about, I'm talking about, you know, from crime, from criminals, when we, when they're arrested, their phones get taken and then the data is taken out of their phones and then the police are left with this huge amount of data. And, and how do you manage that? How do you get to the bottom of what you're looking for? Mm. So we've built technologies there. So you've got traditional forensics, crime scene, more moving into digital forensics. And then um, since about 2016, we've moved into the world of, uh, of, of threat intelligence and, uh, and, and cyber, um, creating technologies around dark web monitoring and analysis. And that's where we are now. And all that, those three elements are still still fully operational within the business. So you're still selling the uh, the crime uh, yeah. estate, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and I think that the importance uh, the 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 important thing about being in business is the fact that you've you've got to know when to let go of products as well that mm. just are not not hitting the mark. Uh, and you've also got to continually look forward um, and, you know, either hone what you've got or develop something new. And um, our, our whole business is based on innovation. Um, yeah, and I, that's, that, that's what I'm hearing. And, and how, in the, in the last few months with COVID-19, how has that impacted the business and how have you responded? Um, it's been an interesting one for us, actually, because, I mean, we've had, we, the, the only thing that we've really had is uh, one, one pro uh, project uh, has, been, has been delayed. Uh, it's still going ahead, but it was delayed over the summer. Um, and we, we, we also are currently working on an Innovate UK project which we get funding for, and we had to ask for an extension on that because uh, we're working with one of the universities and, and some of the work that we needed to do, uh, data gathering, we couldn't do because purely because of, the, of, of COVID. Uh, but that's all, all fine, that's all sorted. From a, from a commercial uh, client point of view, um, we've had more inquiries than we've ever had. And I think that it's because of the area that we're in around threat intelligence and threat intelligence, you know, for us is around things like reputation management, uh, uh, exposure to companies and people on the open and dark web, um, due diligence. So when, you know, people are uh, 
going into any sort of a deal with uh, with, a, with another organization they want things checked out so um all those things are are, are, are important and are more important now particularly from a fraud point of view mm. because fraud has, has increased significantly because of covid um, yeah um, i'm trying to think now on the stat um i think it's i think it's gone up about 400 percent you know and, and so naturally we, we we get busy when things like that start to happen and and the work that we're doing with with on the dark website is the fact that we can we can monitor the dark web so if a company um, has key things that they want to secure, make secure or be alerted to if something is is being sold on the dark web you know that could be their IP it could be their client client list or bank cards or whatever that might be or email accounts um, we can set up alerts and they can be alerted you know within probably four or five hours now if traditionally you know it takes a company around about say say uh, 70 over 70 days to be made even vaguely aware that they've had a data breach so we're trying to avoid that we're trying to bring that down so that companies know that something's going wrong very soon mm. um, so you know for, for us uh, open source intel which is like the open web where we can do research as well and investigate um open source open source intelligence and dark web go together for us and we we want to create a full picture for a company so that they they know what's going on both there and on social media well and um, and the thing i find astonishing about all of this deb is that with without having had a background in the police force other than your husband obviously working for them mm. you've, you've come up with a, a product because you identified a need and then it's evolved into mm. something that's really quite complex and technical and like how how have you developed yourself to be able to like to stay ahead and well the the the, the, the my my uh, sort of the only thing that I'm good at, <laughs> the only thing that I'm truly good at, I think, is spotting an opportunity. I know, I do know my, I, I know my limitations, um, and that um, I always make sure that I, I pull the best people in to do what needs to be done. And, and in fact, uh, when my husband retired, he came into the business. And um, you know, from a from a technical point of view, he he uh, sort of led on the technical team, and then it was you know it's always been my job really to look for the opportunities, and it's just something I naturally pick up. I like I'm 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 talking, but I'm listening with the other ear to what's going on in the next room all the time, mm. um, and and so that that's that's really worked, and. Um, and it is true that people should always employ people who are better than them. I I don't know. I couldn't I couldn't do this business if I didn't get people who who could who could see what the vision was and then translate it into what was needed. Yeah, and I think it it's it's such an important point, isn't it, to to be able to be really clear on 
this is what I'm good at. I can spot an opportunity, yeah. but I actually yeah. need a team who can make yeah. that a reality because that's yeah. your skill set. I mean, we, we, the, the, the business really ended up being a, a, a family business because my son also was in the, in the business with, with me, I think probably before my husband was actually, uh, in uh, 2000, 2005. Um, and, you know, we, we'd all got our own skill set. Mm -hmm. which was important because nobody was vying for vying for space do you know what I mean we were all yeah. bringing something different to the table and um and and so it, it it's worked really well um which again is, it speaks volumes to to how you lead really because when I you know when I talk to a lot of family businesses the infighting and the challenges that they have with the disagreements is mm is really is really difficult for them so what's what's your secret how how do you how do you oh i'll tell you what but without without <laughs> just brushing the rubbish under the carpet well i'll tell you i'll tell you, I'll tell you we're, 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 there have been moments where we could have chiefly killed each other but we um and we've got the body bags to be able to <laughs> but, but, um, um, but i think you know it's it's about not holding grudges, and I think if you're a family that holds, if if you're a group of people that hold grudges, you're never going to get anywhere. I mean, we've had, I mean, we've had heated debates, we've had screaming matches, we've had stormings out, we've had all the things that families do. But the fact of the matter is, when it comes to it, you know, we're, we're working for the same, we're working working to the same goal. Yeah, and um, you know, we, it just gets so well. We, we've all aired our views. That's the end of it. We know what we're going to do, and um, and 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 it's worked. And um, I think that's so important because I think it doesn't matter what business you, you're in, whether it's a, a small business, a large business, family run or not. And and lots of lots of businesses tell me that they work like a family, even if they're hmm. not related by blood. And I think one of the things that, that so many people are afraid of is being able to engage in the, in the conflict and to have yeah. those, those kind of almighty heated debates around fundamental disagreement without yeah. taking it personally. Yeah, what, you, can't, what, you can't do that. You, you know, if, if we were to take, in our, in, in our situation, if we were to take everything personal, we, we did give up years ago, mm. you know, um, you've got there's got to be a valve somewhere and sometimes things get heated and that's okay it depends on the strength of the relationship and the strength of the family unit you know you, you can have a humdinger and and uh, that's that's fine but when push comes to shove if we're working for the same goal then we've all it's quite natural that you can have five people can have the same goal and all heading in the same direction, but have different journeys to get there. Yeah. And it's about, and that's where the clash comes when everybody's can see the vision. We've all got the same vision, but every single human being has a different way of thinking about how they're going to get there. And that's where the conflict can come. And then it's a case of, okay, that can explode for a minute if you like. But in the end, if you want to reach your goal together, you've got to come together and find a solution. And it's back to, you know, it links back for me to stories again, doesn't it? Is that, yeah. that whole idea of, you know, we've, we've all got the same vision, but the story in, in my head and the story in somebody else's head of how you get there is, is yeah. different. And it's based on 
your values, your beliefs, your your experience, your skills. So how how did you when you got into those places where it got really heated? How did you how did you find alignment? How did you come together and work through those differences? I think in the end, it just it's just about getting around the table uh, and 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 mapping it out. You know, what's it going to look like if we do it this way? What's it going to look like if we do it that way? And, and 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 finding a route around it that way once the once the um the uh, thing the the thing had calmed down a bit mm-hmm. um I, I think that's the only way you can do it is to actually map it out on it, it doesn't have to be complex it doesn't have to be on some sort of quite big teams thing it's just mm-hmm. sit down with a piece of paper what does this thing look like it's sometimes it's coming back to basics, isn't it? Of yeah, yeah. What, I think where are we going? What do we yeah. what are we actually trying to do, and how do you make it work for everybody? Yeah, I mean, I, I learned very years ago when I first became a manager of a, of a, of an admin team, and the thing is with management, most people get thrown into management without any training, and I was one of those. I got thrown into management, and I learned very quickly that just because so I, I, somebody does something and uh, they're, they're doing some work and it's not the way I would have done it, but the, the result is the same. Um, you know, you, you first put, your first thought is when, there's, when somebody's doing something like that, you think, no, 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 that's, that's wrong. That's not right. I wouldn't do it that way. Well, does it matter? Mm. I, I, as long as the result is what you wanted and it's within the bounds of legality, yeah. um, it doesn't matter. You know. And there's also something here around if you've built a solid team around you who are be- who are better at mm. certain things than you. You know, yeah. if you if you ask for a chair, you've got in your own mind what a chair looks like. If they're yeah. better than you, they'll probably come up with a better chair than you could oh, have yeah. thought of anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think I think you know with with team with teams, as with as with families, you've got to give um, people space to 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 work and to be and 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 if you don't if you don't do that if you don't give people ownership of what they're doing um then you don't get the buy-in you know they'll think well i'll I'll just do what she says that's the end of that um you've got you've got to let people have ownership one of the things that i hear and and see repeatedly when i when i work with with teams and particularly with mds that they that they have this sense of i've set the business up or i'm the md or i'm the leader of the team there's this this desire to not let go because they feel responsible Mm. what what would your advice be to people who are clinging on to control and not and not able to and constantly getting in the way of the team oh i i think i think it's, it's it's something fundamentally you've got to do because you've got to let your team breathe because if you shut down, if you shut down the ability for people to express themselves and to think, and to look outside of what the task is, then you stifle creativity. Yeah. And 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 you'll never be able to measure what you've lost there ever. Mm. Um. You know, I I, I can't I, I I've been micromanaged myself in 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 a previous job, and it was the most soul destroying thing ever and also made me incredibly nervous so if you're going to control your team so much then you're going to find you could find that um 
the team's less creative you're missing out on opportunities that you don't you will never know what you've missed out on yeah. also i think sometimes it can create more mistakes because a person becomes so worried about what they're doing they're, yeah. they're fighting to make a move they're fighting to make a mistake that's stifling and that's yeah. stifling, that's stifling that your people and it's stifling your business yeah, completely. I mean, the, worst, the worst job I ever had was was when I was a particular manager when I worked at IBM who micromanaged me. And um, at the end of the year, I just I gave up and moved into a different a different department. Yeah. But yeah. I delivered nothing in a year. Yeah. I've gone from being this like top performer, delivering incredible stuff to being in this new department where I delivered nothing. And I was so yeah. destroying. It, yeah. It was, yeah, it was just... It was just awful. And I started to think, gosh, I'm absolutely rubbish at what I do because yeah. I was being micromanaged yeah. so much. Um, so, yeah, it's but it's it's so it's so much easier to say than do, isn't it? And I think there's a there's a level of fear of loss of control if you if you let people loose. And but as you say, it's important for for the sake of creativity. It, it's, it really is. It's important for growth. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out through through this period going through with COVID now with, you know, particularly through lockdown when people were working from home, which who weren't normally working from home. Mm. And I was listening to a, a radio full program yesterday saying about there's been an incre increase in, in sales on um, security technology where, where employers can spy in on, on staff and how they're working. And, um, you know, I was always nervous about remote working um, uh, uh, you know, and I'll, uh, back in the day, I was a bit like that person who wanted, you know, from that control point of view, when we got some remote workers going on, I was a bit paranoid about it. But if you can't, if you can't, if you, if you, you, you can't, if you can't trust your people, then you've got the wrong people or you're the wrong person. Um, and well, the vision and is can. not compelling enough because if no. the vision is compelling enough, people will you know, people yeah. will work their socks off, won't they, to, yeah. to deliver? I mean, we've had a really interesting time over the, this this COVID period because I, I'd um, thought about us going working remotely for a while. But to be honest, and let's be frank, the technology hasn't been brilliant up until now to be able to do it properly, you know, to hold Zoom calls and team, team meetings, fantastic. Um, so we went, we uh, moved to remote working, obviously through lockdown, and we've we've decided that we like it, right. and my team like it, and for, I would say product, productivity is up, um, and they're not having to travel an hour and a half into the office every day. Uh, it's good for the planet, and um, and. You know, once things have released up a bit, we've got an office in Birmingham that we can go to, you know, for, for team meetings or for any sort of meeting. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll once things have settled down a bit and we can get back together, we will we'll meet once a week, but it won't be to, to work in the, you know, sitting around a desk. It'll be to be creative and to talk about what we've done, what we're doing, what the plans are. Yeah. Um, it's fine. Um, Again, it's innovating in the way that you work, isn't it? And finding yeah. new ways to do it. So, yeah. so and they're, 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 they're enjoying it. And to be perfectly frank, I am. And, and, and I know Ben, uh, you know, the other director, we both are. And I, I, I funnily enough, I said yesterday that um, 
you know, we seem to be working uh, smarter mm -hmm. and more focused um, than, you know, how we were before. I mean, we were doing well before, but I think we're doing better now. Mm. So, Deb, um, final question for you. What would your top tip be for anybody listening to this who's leading a team, whether they're an MD or, or a leader of a senior team? I think trusting your team and, and get, ensure that the team that you get are better than, better than you are. Uh, it's, it's all a case of letting go and having trust. Yeah. Fantastic. Deb, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I love Deb's approach to building a team who are better than her, as well as the stories of the family rows they've had round the table. Wouldn't you have loved to have been, been a fly on the wall for some of those? Seriously, I'm inspired by her ability to stay focused on pulling the team together, despite their differences of opinion, and the ability to achieve a common goal, whilst also providing space for the team to make mistakes. I particularly enjoyed her line, you have to let your team breathe or you stifle creativity. I think that's so important and so often overlooked. With the current uncertainty, leaders and teams definitely need to find a more emergent and fluid way of working together without the need to control, but it's easier said than done. Where do you need to let go of control? And what might creativity open up for you and your business? That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature, helping leaders and teams lead with courage and compassion to accelerate growth in a way that makes a difference in the world. You can find out more at www.judejennison.com and you can find me on all the usual social media channels. Until next week, keep leading and I'll be back soon with another interview on Rethinking Leadership. Mm -hmm.